the Popey Podcast You Didn't Know You Needed, where we talk history through Pope-colored glasses and some of the craziest, most popular stories you've never heard of. It's a real joy for us to welcome you all here. I would like to invite each of you to listen. Do not be afraid. P.A. Jesu Domine. This is a popular popular podcast. Do not be afraid. Welcome to the Popular History Podcast. History through Pope Colored Glasses. My name is Greg, and this is episode 8.11. Rome, part 4, the rule of three. By now you've heard my disclaimers, um, so I do want to get started. But I also want to give you a little apology for the background noise. Uh, Studio situation still is what it is. And I am learning not to record um, when the world is awake, uh, just as a general precaution. In any case, let's just dive into things. Pompey the Great was a capable man. During the Social War, he'd served under his father, Pompey Strabo, a loyal Sulla man through and through. Pompey Strabo died in 85, just in time to leave Pompey the Great in charge of his old man's legions in time for Sulla's second march on Rome, the one that left him in charge after Marius' death and Cinna's overthrow. Sulla was now dictator without term limits, though, as we saw last time, Sulla surprisingly limited himself and retired after a few years. But those few years were banner years for Pompey, during which he earned that cognomen Magnus, that is, the Great, while chasing down the remaining Marian supporters across North Africa and, eventually, Spain. In addition to having Sulla title him the Great, the ambitious Pompey also demanded a triumph for his victories. We mentioned a literal triumph back when we were talking about Scipio Africanus, but we didn't really go into it at that time. Might as well take a closer look at it now, it's not like we're trying to fit a million things into this episode. Oh wait, that's exactly like that. Anyways, a Roman triumph was basically a military parade, a welcome-home celebration of a general's major victory, like Scipio's defeat of Hannibal in the Second Punic War, or Marius's defeat of Jugurtha, or Marius's defeat of the Cimbri. Now, some saw Sulla as having earned the Jugurtha triumph more than Marius had, and certainly Sulla had played a major role in beating up on the Cimbri. But up to this point, unless I missed something significant, Even Sulla himself had not officially had the triumphal honor that Pompey the Great was demanding, unsatisfied as Pompey was with simply being called the Great. Pompey did get his triumph, despite him being ridiculously young and not high enough ranked to officially have a triumph, and despite the victory being over, in effect, fellow Romans. Uh, Sure, Pompey had to wait for Sulla to have a triumph first, and There was another dude I won't trouble you with that had a triumph between Sulla's and Pompey's, and sure, Pompey wasn't able to ride in on elephants like he'd planned because the gates weren't wide enough so he had to switch to the conventional horses, but Pompey got his triumph. Military parade in his honor, cheering crowd, slightly worn out with this being the third triumph in the series, sure, all that, but Pompey got his triumph. Ladies and gentlemen, Pompey the Great. So I couldn't help but introduce a young Julius Caesar last episode, and we talked about Pompey just now. There is a third larger-than-life figure of the next generation that we need to bring about before we move forward with our narrative post-Sulla. 
Marcus Licinius Crassus. Though we're introducing him last, Crassus is actually the oldest member of what would become the first triumvirate. Born around 115 BC, like Pompey, and decidedly unlike Caesar, Crassus had sided with Sulla during the Civil War. Crassus did have a bit in common with Caesar, though, insofar as he found himself, as a result, on the wrong end of a prescription list. Uh, Cinna's, in this case, uh, his list for supporters of Sulla after his first march on Rome. Crassus fled to Hispania, modern Spain. After the death of Cinna, he was able to come back, leading some troops he had scrounged up, using some connections his recently deceased father had had. Crassus and his forces played a critical role in the pivotal Battle of the Colline Gate, which we had mentioned last episode, the one that left Sulla well and truly in charge. Dictator without term limit. After that, as we've discussed, Sulla rolled out his own proscription lists, and capitalizing on the favor he'd already earned from his timely support, Crassus was permitted to dive in and scoop up many of the lands confiscated from the estates of Marian faction supporters for cheap. This kind of shameless profiteering is where Crassus's real talent apparently lay, so much so that he ultimately went down in history as Rome's richest man, despite not being born into great wealth, and despite having had his property confiscated by Cinna before the tables turned for the last time. Even more notorious, and more importantly, more profitable than his knack for buying up the estates of his executed enemies, was Crassus's personal fire department. There was no public entity charged with fighting fires at the time. Crassus provided, at least in theory, a viable public service by establishing a team of slaves that could form a bucket brigade to douse a fire and save a threatened building. Sounds good, right? I mean, apart from the slavery thing. Well, judge for yourself, because the reason this was a particularly profitable setup is because Crassus's approach was to show up at a burning building with his brigade ready to go at his command. But he would refuse to give that command until the property owner had deeded the property over to him at a low price. If the property owner refused, no worries. Crassus and his fire brigade would simply not act, allowing the building to continue burning, taking the owner's prospects with it in these generally pre-insurance times. But if and when they cracked and sold at the ridiculously low price Crassus offered, he would proceed to put out the fire at his property. Uh, for the seller, it was better than a total loss. For Crassus, it was a great deal on a hot piece of property. With this and similar approaches, Crassus became filthy, stinking rich. But he lacked the kind of full military honors Pompey the Great was getting, and you can bet it bugged him. Why not Crassus the Great? Where was his triumph? Now, even in these Roman times, there is the occasional exception to the rule of obscurity applied to the various have-nots, whether women or slaves or both. For example, thanks in no small part, as usual, to Hollywood, I'm guessing you've heard the name Spartacus. Not much is known about Spartacus's early life, but sources generally agree he was from Thrace, a region that is now spread across modern Turkey, Greece, and Bulgaria. In Spartacus's case, smart money seems to be on the Bulgaria part, and Spartacus had once been a mercenary before becoming a proper Roman soldier, and then deserting and winding up enslaved. Spartacus's prior military experience appears to have served him well when, in 73 BC, 
a group of about 70 gladiatorial slaves, including Spartacus, used kitchen supplies to break out of a gladiator training school near Capua, in the modern Italian region of Campania. They upgraded their kitchen equipment to gladiatorial arms and armor on their way out, and they started going across the countryside, freeing slaves from countryside villas, defeating a unit sent their way, leaving them with some proper military equipment, and building up a rough army. Eventually, they made a defensible base at Mount Vesuvius, chose Spartacus as their leader, or possibly one of several leaders, and continued to raid, train, and grow in number from slaves freed during raids. Of course, the local legions promptly... Wait, there's there's no local legions, you say? Ah, well, I guess the slaves had chosen their timing well. Some of the legions were off in the east fighting King Mithridates of Pontus, the same king who Marius and Sulla had fought for the right to fight in the First Mithridatic War. Uh, this Third Mithridatic War would ultimately be the last, but it would be years before it was concluded. And if you're counting, yes, there also had been a Second Mithridatic War in the meantime, but frankly that one was a bit of a nothing burger, with folks dying, but no real territory changing hands at the end of things. Most to all of the other legions were off into Hispania, fighting the last Marian general, Sertorius, under Pompey. Pompey the Great, lest anyone forget. Sertorius had been fighting against the Sullans for almost a decade at this point, a lonely existence the last few years after the Colline Gate and Pompey tidying up the Marians in Africa. But by applying guerrilla tactics, Sertorius carried on, and on, and on, keeping Pompey Magnus tied up for years. At one point, it was apparently joked that Sertorius would be back in Rome before Pompey was. Ouch. In the absence of available legions, the Roman authorities sent 3,000 militia troops under the command of a praetor, that's the rank below consul, to clear out the rabble. The unit blockaded the route from Vesuvius, planning to bottle up and starve out the ex-slaves. It was a good plan, but Spartacus's side had a better plan, making new routes by climbing down Vesuvius using vines on the theoretically impassable side of the mountain, allowing them to carry out a surprise attack on the rear of the Roman line, slaughtering them. In response, another praetor was sent down with more troops, and was likewise defeated. This gave Spartacus' side even more high-quality equipment and renown, and more slaves made their way to Vesuvius to join the group. There was really something going on here. Eventually, their numbers were estimated at well over a hundred thousand, and they raided across southern Italy, not just in Campania, but in Basilicata and Calabria as well. The specific goals of the ex-slaves, who, I admit I'm having a bit of a hard time naming because calling them something simple like Spartacus's men would fail on two counts, there were plenty of women and children around, no one wanted to leave their families behind, and, count two, though the Romans tended to see Spartacus as the general, it's clear he wasn't the only one making decisions, as tens of thousands would eventually be identified as a separate group from Spartacus's band. In any event, the Romans weren't so much concerned with how the group functioned as they were with making it stop functioning, which, fair enough. What they had originally took as a bit of unrest and crime was a full-blown war, with all the accompanying horrors, in mainland Italy. Even the two previous servile wars had at least been in Sicily, which the Romans considered a bit of a backwater. But when it came to Spartacus and the Hundred Thousand, Romans were genuinely afraid for their city like they hadn't been since the days of Hannibal. Sure, Sulla had marched in Rome twice in living memory, 
but these were slaves. For them, this was the stuff of nightmares. So it's time to stop messing around and send in the legions. Two legions were pulled together and placed under the command of the consuls for the year, and as a bit of foreshadowing, I'm just going to let you know that I'm not going to trouble you with their names. They had some success with the large splinter group I mentioned earlier, a success in war, of course, being a euphemism for tens of thousands of people killed, but that's history for you. In any event, when it came to the main group of Spartacus, both consular armies were defeated by the supposed rabble, who had spent the winter training and who, you might imagine, were highly motivated. Two legions had now fallen, and 120,000 slaves were loose, unchecked, in central Italy. I should note that the two main sources we have for this offer different accounts at this point. Appian lists the group as defeating both consuls again before changing their mind about sacking Rome and heading back south to try and get more metal for weapons and supplies. Plutarch, on the other hand, only describes one of the legions being defeated, and then the group heads north to escape into Gaul, away from Roman territory. Plutarch describes them defeating the last force in their way, and just as Appian had seen the way to Rome open before the armies before they turned back, for some unexplained reason, Spartacus's army turned back into Italy and wintered there. Not all of this makes sense, but it's worth noting that the two accounts don't directly contradict one another, and it's possible to fit it all into a logical timeline with different events being emphasized in each account. Either way, according to both accounts, the slaves put the legions to flight, and the command of the war was taken from the consuls and given to our stinking rich friend who's itching for some military glory to make up for the triumph Pompey got, and he for some reason didn't after all his critical support for Sulla at the Colline Gate. Yes, it's time for Marcus Licinius Crassus to earn a triumph of his own. Crassus, as we saw earlier, was something of a ruthless man, willing to get dirty to achieve his objectives, whether financial or martial. Even by Roman standards, Crassus was a harsh, old-school commander, including reviving the ancient practice of decimation for lapses in discipline. That means having every tenth soldier killed by his fellow soldiers. A way of seriously punishing capital offenses such as cowardice or desertion committed by whole units without losing the use of the whole unit. There was nevertheless some disastrous disobedience anyways when one of Crassus's commanders ignored an order not to attack and was routed, but overall Crassus had success in his pursuit of Spartacus's group back down into southern Italy, likely helped by the fact that the whole issue was now taken quite seriously and six legions had been assembled for the purpose of ending the Great Slave War. Eventually, there was no further for the group to go. According to Plutarch, Spartacus had planned to cross into Sicily to free more slaves and build his army further. Uh, recall that Sicily had been the theater for the first two servile wars, but pirates he had made a deal with for passage across the Strait of Messina betrayed him, taking his money and vanishing. Spartacus's group turned back, closely monitored by Crassus's army. Crassus had tried to bottle up Spartacus when he was negotiating by the strait, as the toe of Italy is thin as it approaches Sicily, but like a recap of Vesuvius, the ex-slaves were able to find a way past the allegedly impassable and get north of Crassus's troops, something Crassus would regret soon enough, because it turns out Pompey was now back from Spain, riding high on the heels of victory. Well, 
sort of anyhow. It turns out Pompey never did defeat Sertorius of Sertorius's war fame. Rather, the last Marian general was killed by his own troops. Uh, goodness knows why, troops do that sort of thing sometimes, and Pompey was able to quickly dispatch his successor in order to announce victory and hoof it back to Italy to see about getting some victory there too. Don't worry, lads. Pompey the Great is here. Now, to borrow a term from video gaming, yes, Pompey is absolutely trying to kill Steel here. Crassus sees it coming and speeds things up on his end. The ex-slave army splinters off with bands trying to go their own way, undisciplined and tired of taking orders. The splinter groups are intercepted and individually crushed by Crassus's forces, and soon Spartacus himself is defeated at the Battle of Silarius River. Spartacus is presumably killed here, but his body is never found. That's the kernel of truth that would turn into the I'm Spartacus scene of Hollywood fame. Famously, Crassus had 6,000 of the survivors from the final battle crucified along the Appian Way, the main Roman road from Rome to Brindisium, modern Brindisi in Apulia, the heel of the Italian boot, though these crucifixions were focused on the section from Rome to Capua in Campania. So that's uh, all done and dusted, right? Crassus's triumph has been earned. <laughs> nope. A force of about 5,000 managed to escape Crassus's grasp and ended up slaughtered by Pompey, who quickly informed the Senate that Crassus had done a good job and all, but that he, Pompey, had finished things. And so, Pompey earned a second triumph. Now, in all fairness, it's likely that a big factor here was the fact that fighting slaves wasn't seen as bringing great glory. In fact, the Romans generally saw it as an embarrassment that things had gotten as far as they had. And Pompey's victory here was also for the celebrations he had missed after um, defeating Sertorius, which may have been exaggerated in the reports the Senate was going off of. Speaking of how things are reported, if it seems like I'm rather bullish on Spartacus here, it's part of an old tradition. Even the ancient sources, through all the condemnation of crimes and horrors seen in raided towns and villas, even those ancient sources had a fundamental respect and to some degree an admiration for the slave general. It does seem to fit into the the fish was this big thing that the Romans liked to do with their enemies. So yeah, that's the Spartacus stuff, which Plutarch tellingly and rightfully filed under his life of Crassus, though Pompey, Pompey the Great, was the one who ended up getting the triumph, while Crassus had to settle for a smaller scale celebration known as an ovation. And yes, you've heard that word before. Now, believe it or not, the next thing Crassus and Pompey did was work together. The two victors put aside their differences and noticed their similarities. For example, they were both heading up legions in Italy just in time for the consular elections. Wouldn't you know it, through a platform presumably of won't you stop citing laws to us who have swords, a classic Pompey quote from another time but fitting here, suddenly 70 BC was the year of the consuls Crassus and Pompey, despite Pompey being only 35 years old, well short of the 42 technically required. The two soon parted on good terms, each pursuing their own specialties, Crassus his fortune building, and Pompey Magnus his glory hoarding. We'll check in on them again in a bit.
But for now, what's Caesar up to? Oh, oh, that's interesting. The year is now 68 BC, and Caesar is doing a funeral oration for his beloved Aunt Julia. Julia, who had been the wife of one Gaius Marius, whose last militant supporters had just been defeated a few years ago after years and years of fighting. And here's Caesar, dusting off old pictures and busts of the old general, which is bad enough, but also subtly emphasizing the royal and religious credentials he himself had through Aunt Julia. That's all very interesting indeed. Oh, uh, speaking of Caesar's family ties, I might as well mention here that the family name came from the surgery, not the other way around, if that's indeed the correct etymology at all here. Though I do think the Caesarian section connection one is the most likely. In any event, it would not have been Julius Caesar, but an earlier relative who had been born by a C-section, because the skylight option for delivering babies is a serious enough operation that it was always fatal for the mother in the ancient world, and Caesar's mother, Aurelia, is still alive at this point in our narrative. If you're wondering how the surgery got its name, catere is Latin for to cut. Anyways, Caesar was also starting to climb the cursus honorum during this period, that being the latter of different civil and military roles that would eventually earn you your place among the Roman elite, with ever greater competition for the higher rungs and age restrictions set in place to make the expected progression quite clear. Good stuff, and of course, Caesar did well with it. He even had a bit more respect for the age restrictions than Pompey did. Caesar also did well with the ladies, so we're told, though honestly, there are so many relationships, real and imagined, with him and with the other folks we're touring in this episode, not just women, Caesar earned the nickname of himself as Queen of Bithynia, thanks to his relationship with the king there. Uh, anyways, we just don't have time to fit it all in today. Yes, Caesar, who once divorced his wife because of a rumor, allegedly stating that Caesar's wife must be beyond suspicion, apparently that didn't apply to Caesar himself. It's even rumored that he was actually the father of one Marcus Junius Brutus, one of his eventual assassins, but he would have been in his early teens at the time, so that's pretty unlikely. One thing Caesar was having trouble with, though, was money. Having lost his inheritance to Sulla's retribution seems to have left some permanent scarring on Caesar's pocketbook. Eventually, the appeal of certain posts appeared to be that they kept him from being sued by his creditors. This was likely made worse by the grease needed for the political wheels, such as when the dark horse candidate Caesar managed to secure the office of Pontifex Maximus in 63 BC amid allegations of bribery. If there's truth to those allegations, having to buy bribes is an easy way to make your financial situation worse. Either way, Caesar needed a wealthy friend. <laughs> Crassus. <coughs> but before we get there, we should talk about what else was going on in 63 BC. The Catiline Conspiracy. In a nutshell, the Catiline Conspiracy was a murder plot to kill the consul for the year, one Marcus Tullius Cicero. I say consul, not consuls, because A, no one cares about the other consul, and B, it seems that Cicero had made a deal that he would be allowed to effectively be consul on his own, put a pin in that concept, and C, I couldn't find a specific statement that the plot necessarily included killing the other consul. 
Alright, so, a plot to kill Consul Cicero. Why? Because Catalina, anglicized as Catiline, had failed his own bid to become consul for the year, despite the support of folks like Crassus and Caesar. Cicero was tipped off, and the morning of the planned assassination, that's November 7th, 63 BC, he had guards posted at his house who scared off the would-be assassins. In the Senate the next day, Cicero revealed the plot and denounced Catiline. By all accounts, Senator Catiline himself was in attendance for this. And by some accounts, the other senators nearby kind of scootered away when Cicero was speaking, though other accounts indicate no one believed Cicero. Taking a cue from Rob and Jamie over at Totalis Rankium, give them a listen if you haven't already, I'm going to go ahead and go with the former, because it's more amusing. Now, it didn't help he was up against the most famous orator in history. Over 2,000 years later, Cicero was still held up as the gold standard of Latin language rhetoric when I managed to catch the last few years of the Latin program at my local public school. But, helpfully for Catiline, at this point, Cicero had no evidence to back his claims. Catiline fled, and good for him, because within a few weeks, actual evidence of conspiracy showed up, since the conspirators had carried on with the latter phases of the plan and were recruiting allies via letter, despite the failure to assassinate Cicero. Evidence in hand, Cicero acted quickly, very quickly. The incriminating letters were read before the Senate, and it was Sinultus Consultum Ultimum, that's that final act, that license to kill we saw against the Gracchi, for example, it was that time once again. The available conspirators were put to death without a trial, over Caesar's objections. Now, with Caesar popping up there on the side of the conspirators, well, you can bet, through the years, both Caesar and Crassus were accused of involvement in that conspiracy. It's hard to say for sure what exactly happened here. For all we know, the whole thing could have been a setup meant to take down Catiline. I don't think that's the most likely scenario, but we don't have much evidence to go on, so pretty much anything is possible. In terms of most likely, it looks like Caesar just preferred Catiline's policies. Uh, Catiline, after all, was a fellow populare, and Caesar was not on board with summary execution of his political allies without a trial, hence his objection. Caesar really didn't have a reason to get involved with the ugliness Catiline and his conspirators had gotten up to. It was high-risk stuff, and Caesar's career was coming along just fine. What did he care that Catiline didn't get to be consul? Oh, as a reminder, since we haven't talked about populares versus optimates since Marius, the populares were basically the common man camp. Uh, Catiline apparently had campaigned on universal debt forgiveness, while the optimates, like Cicero and Sulla before him, were basically the old school and old money camp. There was about to be a marriage between the optimates and the populares, though. But first, we've got to bring the groom back home. We last saw Pompey, Pompey the Great, fresh on the heels of his exaggerated victory in the Third Servile Wars and his imagined victory over Sertorius, which had collectively given him, apparently, enough glory to justify celebrating his second triumph, after having earned his first triumph in service to Sulla that was almost as critical as the service the triumph-less Crassus had performed for Sulla during the Civil War. I exaggerate for dramatic effect, but also to remind you of Crassus's perspective on all this. 
The shared consulship of Crassus and Pompey in 70 BC was generally unproductive because the two rarely agreed on what to do, but apparently Pompey did buck some of the expectations for a loyal optimate follower of Sulla by coordinating the return of some of the power Sulla had taken from the Tribune of the Plebs and the Plebeian Assembly. History has a tendency to get more complicated the more closely you look at it. People buck expectations. Caesar did like that populare-friendly policy, in any event. Now, I do want to finish out all these folks today, so let's go ahead and just go on with Pompey's next round of conquests rather than dwelling on that shared consulship. If you want to know history's most underrated general, in my opinion, it is Sertorius, who had held out for years against Pompey the Great. Because, for all my ragging, Pompey absolutely wipes the floor with every other opponent he faces. Well, almost every other opponent. When, in 67 BC, he is sent out to stop the pirates who had been plaguing the Mediterranean, keep in mind, young Caesar himself had been kidnapped by these pirates, and pirates had even raided Ostia, the port of Rome, for other hostages to ransom, when Pompey is sent out to crush the pirates, they are emphatically crushed. After that, Pompey fought Mithridates of Pontus. Yes, that same dang Mithridates whom Marius and Sulla had went to war with over the right to fight last episode, and indeed the same Mithridates who had already survived two wars against the Romans. Who else could say that? And certainly, he looked to be surviving the third Mithridatic war as well. As you may recall, that war was already going on when the Romans were looking under their couch cushions for spare legions at the start of the Third Servile War, also known as the one with Spartacus. Yes, we're now a good five years deep into Mithridates' third war with the Romans, and he's just crushed four legions. Four legions! At the Battle of Zella. But now, it's Pompey's turn to take a crack at the Pontic Punisher, which, as far as I know, wasn't Mithridates' nickname, but I'm going with it anyways. Oh, actually, Mithridates actually did have a nickname. The Great. Time to find out which great is greater. Hint, it's Pompey. Mithridates loses and ends up committing suicide while running away. According to legend, the suicide takes several attempts because he's built up an immunity to all available poisons over the years as a safeguard against poison. This is, after all, a man who had been king longer than anyone left in our narrative had been alive, and he was an open enemy of Rome for most of that time. Pompey's next victim was Mithridates' ally and son-in-law, another the Great, Tigranes of Armenia. Now, don't be fooled. Modern Armenia isn't much in terms of geopolitics, apologies to any Armenian listeners, but under Tigranes, the kingdom of Armenia reached its greatest extent. In fact, he had actually swallowed up the remaining bits of the Seleucid Empire for a bit before Pompey's predecessor Lucullus had made him spit it back out. And yes, in fairness, Lucullus had actually had a fair bit of success in the early stages of his war with Mithridates and his Armenian ally, but it had all come unraveled with the rebellion of his troops and the whole losing four legions thing. I should also apologize because, though I covered Mithridates first, in reality, it was Tigranes Pompey had fought and defeated first. Tigranes did keep his life and his throne, 
reigning as a client of Rome. After knocking out the dynamic duo of Pontus and Armenia, which was really the greatest force in the region at the time, even surpassing Parthia, uh, by the way, put a pin in Parthia, and maybe write Crassus next to that. Anyways, after subjugating Armenia and erasing Pontus, Pompey began tearing through the rest of the region with ease, vassalizing Colchis and Iberia, both in the modern-day nation of Georgia, and defeating the rulers of what's called Caucasian Albania. That's obscure enough that we don't know what they called themselves, but it corresponded roughly to modern-day Azerbaijan. After that battle, Pompey decided to march on to the Caspian Sea, but, and this is from Plutarch, quote, was turned back by a multitude of deadly reptiles, end quote. Which, considering Plutarch just described him beating 72,000 men, I'd really like to know just how many snakes it was that made them turn around just shy of a landmark they could have definitely bragged about. This area is the furthest east we have hard archaeological evidence for Roman presence, though we know that the empire technically extended a bit further east for a hot minute under Trajan, almost 200 years later. Moving onward and southward, Pompey more or less took charge of modern Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Palestine, and Israel. In some cases, he ended kingdoms and even empires, as was the case for the Seleucids, and in other cases, he allowed Rome-friendly client kings to carry on, as he did in the Hasmonean kingdom that was running Israel at the time, though in their case, he did scoop up a lot of their territory for Rome. We'll get into that more a couple episodes when we zoom back in on that region and catch up from the time of the Maccabees to the time of Christ. For now, it might give a sense of scale to consider that the whole area that's been the focus of half a dozen episodes of this podcast so far was basically a blip in the radar, one of several conquests Pompey carried out in 63 BC. Believe it or not, I actually skipped over a few client kings and such. You're welcome. Speaking of welcome, in several of these areas, they had already considered themselves as being under foreign rule, and so, when Pompey came over with a comparatively light touch, um, believe it or not, in many cases they literally considered Pompey's arrival as a new foundation of the cities, and would count their years based on how long it had been since Pompey had come along, something called the Pompeian Era. All right. I think Pompey's made a sufficient case for his third triumph. And, yes, in case I haven't been clear, this is basically the first time I've felt like Pompey's made a sufficiently clear case for a triumph. So, in 61 BC, Pompey got his third triumph, and things got real serious between the folks who would go down as the first triumvirate. Each brought something to the table. Crassus, the eldest of the bunch, had cash. His wealth was basically equivalent to a full year of the Roman treasury. Pompey, he of the trio of triumphs, had power and glory. Caesar, the whiz kid, had political skills to be envied and military skills to rival Pompey. It certainly couldn't have hurt that Caesar had also been the main proponent of giving Pompey authority over basically the whole East, a move which had been extremely controversial among the elites at the time because they knew what might happen if a capable general had too much power. But it was also a popular move among the general population because a capable general 
running military affairs was good for Roman ambition. In the end, the informal arrangement was sealed with the marriage of Caesar's daughter Julia to the somewhat recently divorced Pompey. I can't help but note that the reason Pompey gave for divorce was his wife's infidelity, and that Caesar himself was apparently a likely suspect, something Pompey seems to have taken in stride, at least in terms of his relationship with Caesar, and he even joked about it. Now, Caesar's daughter Julia. I haven't mentioned this particular Julia before, because the last time we were talking about Caesar's family life, she wasn't born yet. If you're thinking the name sounds familiar, that's because it was Caesar's aunt, Julia, who had been Gaius Marius' wife. The Romans were ridiculously uncreative when it came to naming conventions. Basically, all women in a gens, a family group, would traditionally be named after the gens, in effect having no first name. Rather, if a distinction were needed, women could, I kid you not, be numbered, such as Amelia Tercia, the wife of Scipio Africanus, and, we infer, a woman with two surviving older sisters. Tercia simply meaning third. In any event, the 17-ish Julia was about 30 years Pompey's junior, though, despite the age gap, by all accounts, there was a genuine, mutual attachment and devotion. So, that's nice. Also nice, as always, was the steady progress of Caesar's career. Since we last saw him, he'd been governing southern Spain, and had subdued a couple of troublesome tribes there, earning the acclamation of his troops as imperator, which meant it was time for him to head back to Rome to collect a triumph, and, oh, listen to the ticking of that biological clock, it's also time for him to advance to the consulship in his track along the Cursus Honorum. Oh, one problem, though. Caesar couldn't have his triumph before the Senate signed off on it and the party was all set up, which would take more time than he had. He had to be in the city to apply to run his consul soon, and if he entered the city before he had his triumph, he would forfeit his triumph. Caesar asked for permission to run for consul in absentia. That permission was denied, thanks to Cato the Younger, one of his senatorial opponents. So Caesar made his choice, and he entered the city to run for consul. He would have to earn his triumph another day. Naturally, Caesar won this election, and was to serve his consulship alongside one Marcus Calpurnius Bibulus, who opposed him bitterly, but was no match for the pressure applied with the full weight of the first triumvirate, which went public when Caesar proposed a bill to purchase land for the long-suffering veterans of Pompey's eastern campaign, and was flanked by Pompey and Crassus. The tribunes who could have vetoed that bill were intimidated into compliance. Bibulus tried his own veto, but was ignored and had human excrement dumped on him by a mob. Caesar would later claim that he simply hadn't heard Bibulus's veto, which I'm going to call shenanigans on, since Caesar certainly would have known it was coming, even if he hadn't heard it. Bibulus's next strategy was to delay the vote by using his consular power to proclaim a public holiday every day it might be scheduled. Part of Roman religion meant that votes couldn't be held on public holidays, but A, this strategy is ridiculous, and B, Caesar was a higher-ranking religious figure in his own right as Pontifex Maximus at this point, so this frankly amazing approach was ignored. Overwhelmed and doubtless frustrated, 
Bibulus retreated from most public interactions and generally let Caesar carry on, leading to the joke that 59 BC, which, like all years, was naturally to be named after the two consuls, was the year of Julius and Caesar. At the end of the year of Julius and Caesar, we're told Bibulus emerged, desiring to make his farewell speech, customary for consuls. In a final embarrassment for poor Bibulus, a tribune of the plebs vetoed his speech. With the year of Julius and Caesar now done and dusted, Caesar went off for more military glory and to exorcise the demons of the Romans' past. The Gauls. Since the city was sacked under the Gallic chieftain Brennus, the Gauls had been the boogeymen of the Roman psyche, and not without reason. It had been the Gauls, after all, whose invasion had kicked off Gaius Marius's string of consecutive consulships years earlier. Victories had been had, including those of Marius and the incorporation of Cisalpine Gaul generations before, which is actually how Caesar got involved, as he had arranged to be made governor of that region as his next step. Apparently, without his arranging, Caesar did often luck into things, the governor of Transalpine Gaul died suddenly, and Caesar was given that position as well. Soon, Caesar has what he needs, a casus belli, that is, an excuse for war. The Helvetii tribe asked to peacefully pass through Roman land as part of a planned migration. Caesar refuses, and things escalate. Soon, Caesar's fighting in Gaul proper, and once you're in the territory, all kinds of things can happen to give you ways to justify going to war against other tribes. Things like, say, a large number of tribes uniting against you under King Vercingetorix in order to massively outnumber and crush you. Okay, you got me. This isn't just hypothetical. And no, Caesar didn't get crushed. He does die in this episode, but not now. Instead, he earns another triumph one which features Vercingetorix himself, who was publicly executed as part of the festivities. Yay? All of this takes a while. The Gallic Wars end in 50 BC, as we'll explore, and Caesar's Gallic triumph isn't held until several years later, in 46. So we should take a few steps back and check in with the other triumvirs. In fact, Check-in with the other triumvirs is pretty much exactly what Caesar, Crassus, and Pompey did in 56 BC at a place called Lucca in Italy, where they talked about some tensions that had grown up between the three of them and agreed to extend Caesar's commission for the Gallic Wars for another five years, which is good, because it really was a big job despite my ridiculous summary of it. Caesar wrote a bunch about how much work it was, in fact, in a series called, with his full literary creativity on display, on the Gallic Wars, or De Bello Gallo, if you want to be pretentious and use Latin. Not that Caesar's Latin is pretentious, it's actually very readable, which was basically the point. It was more or less a bestseller, and helped raise his public profile even further. The year after the Lucca Conference, Crassus and Pompey split the consulship much like they had 15 years before after defeating Spartacus, and they each carried on with their different plans. The good times were soon to end, though, and the first truly major blow to the triumvirate came in the form of the death of Julia, Caesar's daughter and Pompey's beloved wife, in childbirth in 54 BC. 
This is a big what-if moment. At this point, unless you believe that juicy rumor about Brutus's origin, Julia was Caesar's only child. The baby she had been carrying was the future of his line as much as the child was Pompey's. A boy according to some, a girl according to others, in either event this child of Pompey and grandchild of Caesar would have certainly solidified ties between the two. But as it is, with the simultaneous loss of both mother and child, rather than being cemented, the ties between Caesar and Pompey were largely severed. The next year, Crassus died, killed by the Parthians while he chased his dream of a triumph in his role as governor of Syria, which he had received in the follow-up to the Luca Conference. The probably false but very famous story goes that the Parthians poured molten gold down the throat of the deceased Crassus to symbolize his thirst for wealth. In any event, the richest man in Rome died without a triumph, and the triumvirate effectively died with him. There wasn't war between Caesar and Pompey immediately. Uh, for one thing, Caesar was still busy in Gaul, and in fact beyond. Gaul had been fairly pacified shortly after Luca, and he had then moved on, on typically flimsy pretenses. He was actually in Britain when he learned about Julia's death, on one of his two notably unsuccessful campaigns there, before bad harvests led to a massive revolt among the mainland Gauls that drew Caesar back across the channel to face that chieftain Vercingetorix, a man important enough that my spellcheck recognized him right away. Now, Crassus had died during this time, like we discussed, and the Senate had decided that Pompey should be sole consul for the year 52, while a bit of a shell game played out between factions in Rome and tensions rose. The Senate favored Pompey. Not so much in a yay Pompey, we love Pompey kind of way, as in a Pompey's in control of the troops in and around the city, so therefore yay Pompey, we love Pompey kind of way. Assume, the Senate formally noted that Gaul was pretty well pacified now, so it's time for Caesar to return home. Without his army, thank you very much. Caesar agreed. Uh, kind of. His work in Gaul was indeed done, so he headed home. With his army. On January 10th, 49 BC, in an act that is still a metaphorical shorthand for an irreversible step, a no-turning-back moment, Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon River. He is said to have marked the occasion by commenting, Yacta alia est, or the die has been cast. Now this river crossing was a significant step because the Rubicon was, at the time, seen as the northern border of Italia, the line where Caesar's commission ended and Caesar's civil war began. It's actually not quite clear where the Rubicon was, though there have been several claimants and theories through the years. In any event, it was clear enough at the time that war was on. I'll spare you the details, but to tie things back to the big-picture struggles in the late Republican Roman history, basically, Caesar was on the side of our old friends the Populares, following in the footsteps of the Gracchi and Marius, and Pompey was on the side of the Optimates, in the tradition of luminaries such as Sulla and, less militaristically, Cicero. And again, in a way too general and contemporary nutshell, the Populares were something along the lines of power-to-the-people-style populists, 
while the Optimates were more generally old guard conservative types. But really, you don't need to know all that. What is good for you to know is that after some back and forth between the factions, Caesar decisively defeated Pompey in the Battle of Pharsalus in central Greece, after which Pompey fled to Egypt and was soon murdered by his own rebellious troops, who thought to send Caesar Pompey's severed head as a gift. Caesar, so we're told, actually wasn't too pleased about this, crying over the loss of the great man and putting Pompey's assassins to death. One man, who it seems had some of Pompey's blood on his hands, was the pharaoh of Egypt himself. At that time, a relatively young boy by the name of Ptolemy XIII, Philopator, who just happened to be involved in a civil war of his own at the time. Accordingly, Caesar teamed up with Ptolemy's opponent, who was, of course, his sister-wife, Cleopatra VII. Yes, that Cleopatra. And yes, when I say sister-wife, I mean his sister to whom he is married, because that's how the Ptolemies tended to roll. Famously, just about all of Caesar's life is famous to some degree, famously, Caesar went ahead and spent some time in Egypt after his Civil War victory, striking up a romantic relationship with Cleopatra and likely fathering a son, Caesarian, with her. Caesar never himself acknowledged this child, but Cleopatra said he was his, and he did not deny it. Interestingly, though Caesar was at this point already married to a Roman woman named Calpurnia, his relationship with Cleopatra wasn't really seen as adultery in Roman eyes. Elite Roman men were generally free to pair as they pleased, as long as it wasn't with the wives of other elite Roman men. A foreigner like Cleopatra didn't count. Their relationship was notably public, including a famously luxurious boat ride down the Nile, and Cleopatra stayed at Caesar's villa in Rome on and off in their years together. Of course, there was still business for Caesar to attend to, including pacifying the freshly revolting Kingdom of Pontus, Mithridates' old haunt, which had rebelled again upon news of the civil war between Caesar and Pompey. Caesar made quick work of Mithridates' youngest son, summarizing his victory with the famous phrase, Veni, Vidi, Vici. I came, I saw, I conquered. And yes, if I was using accurate pronunciation for pretty much anything, those Vs would be Ws. In reality, wrapping up the remnants of civil war isn't as easy as that short phrase might make it sound. Caesar was still battling the remnants of Pompey's faction more than two years after the general's death, and though things tended to go his way, that wasn't always the case. For example, in January of 46, Caesar lost the Battle of Ruspina to one of Pompey's old allies, one Titus Labienus, who incidentally had actually been one of Caesar's men before the Civil War. Such were the shifting allegiances of the day. But, in the end, it was Caesar who was on top. With Pompey gone, there was no one powerful enough to really rival him. Like Sulla before him, Caesar was master of Rome. Of course, Caesar's official title was a bit more nuanced. During the Civil War, he had picked up the title of Dictator, at first, very briefly, less than two weeks, long enough to see himself elected consul, and then with a year-long term. Soon after he wrapped up the last bits of the Civil War, Caesar was formally made 
dictator for 10 years, during which term, in 45 BC, he reformed the calendar, an event which I can pretty much guarantee we're going to revisit because I love nerding out about that sort of thing, and the next calendar reform will be carried out by a pope. Early on in the following fateful year of 44 BC, Julius Caesar was proclaimed dictator perpetuo, dictator for life. But this was all too much for Rome's deeply ingrained anti-monarchy tradition. Less than two months later, Caesar was assassinated on the Ides of March, that's March 15th by our counting. More on Ides and such when I do that calendar episode. In any event, the assassination involved many conspirators in the Senate and a good deal of stabbing. The most famous figure was Brutus. Yes, that same Brutus who may have been Caesar's own illegitimate son. But the real towering figure of the day was none other than Pompey the Great, because the Senate was temporarily meeting in the theater of Pompey on the day of the assassination. That's probably a good place to stop for today. Next week, we'll take a look at the aftermath of the assassination of Julius Caesar and see how the Roman Republic continued its gradual transition into the Roman Empire. Thank you, as always, to our sound technician, Billy, our logo designer, Russ, my ever-patient Vice Pope, Mrs. Popular History, and to you, the listeners. This is a fun project of mine. I do enjoy it. I look forward to more to come, and uh, I will get the studio space sound quality issues figured out eventually. Uh, Slow going, but for now, I figured you guys would appreciate an episode and things getting a little bit more back on a, a schedule. See you next week.